boom we're ready so i'm a bit bunged up still i've got a bit of a cold anyway ros really lovely to have you here um uh, wrong camera <laughs> i switched the wrong camera there um this is my little switcher it switches between cameras so ros you are a retired pediatrician yes how many years were you working 40 yeah 40 that that's a that's a decent number do you, okay. do you miss working yes and no um i am still working actually i'm working more hours than i've done for a long time i have to say right now and i'm glad i've had the time to do this why do you say yes and no like what are you missing about your work i enjoyed the job immensely i um i th- i think we gave a good service i don't know if i would enjoy it now i still actually have quite a lot of friends who are still working and you know when we're chatting over coffee on a bike ride there's not a lot that they're saying about the job now that makes me think i'd like to be back there when did you retire 10 years years ago yeah the voice just yeah, dipped there 10 years ago 10 I was trying years to remember <laughs> yeah 10 yeah. years ago yeah right so that's 2013 i think yeah. things were still pretty bad in the um NHS then. So what are the what are your friends saying now about the NHS, which is why they're not happy? I think they're I think they're constantly under pressure, pressure of targets. I think you say the NHS was bad ten years ago, and it's interesting my husband, who was an adult physician, retired five years before me. He just ran out of steam, came home and said, I've handed him my notice. Mm. Because they were being totally target driven. And I'd seen it in schools because I was a school governor. And there we were being totally target driven. SATS results, everything, you know, you, you stopped teaching anything that was outside box ticking. But in pediatrics, it was quite interesting because actually nobody seemed to be interested in us. We were way out on the, the hospital site where I worked. We were diagonally the opposite end of the site from the management. On one occasion, I met them. The then CEO, she was coming for the first time. She had already been in post nine months and she came down to pediatrics and she was going from me to obstetrics and I had to take her to show her the way. Wow. And that is what they thought of women and children. And I think because, because in pediatrics and obstetrics, you don't have waiting lists and all the targets were about waiting lists. Mm. And if you breached by one minute, you know, your, your targets would be messed up and the Bonus for the CEO would drop, et cetera, et cetera. There were lots of targets that led to um, irrational behavior in A&E, for example. But PEDS, we didn't have that. We always kept our waiting list slow. Mm. Um, we, we, at the time I was working, still all the letters came directly into the pediatric department. We got a lovely clinic clerk. We all had our offices there. And she would look at these. She, she was only, you know, she had no medical or nursing qualifications. She was a clerk. But she'd look at the letter. And it would say urgent, and she'd think, well, that doesn't sound very urgent. But she'd look at another letter that said routine, and she'd look and she'd think, I don't like the sound of that. So she'd just walk around, knock on the door, come in and say, look, Dr. Jones, what do you think about this? It says it's routine. And i say, we need to see that one today, don't we? And she'd ring them, and they'd come that afternoon. Because mm. it's how we worked, and it worked well. And, you know, I think the sort of things that drove all the targets didn't really apply. But somewhere along the line, obviously, that's changed. They're very target-driven. Uh, they get driven mad by things like the IT system. We've got IT systems that don't talk to each other. We've got a new IT system that means that nurses are now spending much more time on the computer where they, 
you know, it's ideal to have things online. But I assumed when they went online with the observations, it was because it would be taken direct from the monitoring device. Mm. But it's not. It's still that the nurse every hour has got to make a note of what the monitor says at one o'clock, as if that's more important than what it said at 12.58. But instead of writing it on a chart, which is and it's done, she's got to log onto the computer and log in that baby's passcode and log in her own passcode and so on. And then if the baby, meanwhile, has an apneic attack and she has to run back away from the computer and go back to the baby, then by the time she gets back to the computer, it's logged her out again. So she's got to start again, etc. There's loads of... They sound silly, it sounds petty, but they're things that are driving people to distraction. No, I don't think it is petty. And the funny thing is, you know, it sounds all good having these targets, people mm-hmm. to focus the energies and measure how well you're performing. But what I found is that managers were more interested and focused on targets and achieving the targets and manipulating those numbers mm-hmm. than the priority of treating a patient as, a, you know, the individual and helping them. Yeah. They, they kind of like... They lost track of what, what the purpose of the hospital was. Yeah. The hospital is there to treat people and look after them. Yeah. Be a compassionate, empathic place, a caring place, a safe place, a you know, clean place. Suddenly it became a place where we need to churn out and be efficient and these numbers are what we're looking at. And yeah. I'll just give you an example, actually, of when we were being inspected for A&E for our weights and the hospital another hospital nearby, they had no problem. They met their targets. And I thought, that's how have you done that? And we were, we were struggling at the time. And what they'd done was they'd cancelled clinics completely for the day that the people were coming. You think, what's clinics got to do with A&E targets? Yeah. Well, what they'd done was they turned the clinic area into an overspill admission ward. So anybody who was short of their four hours and looked like they weren't going to be ready to go by four hours simply moved next door. A&E and, and the clinic were next door. Mm. So A&E was wonderful. They just all went through there and then they could sit and have a few more tests and this, that and the other. And then they could go home from there. But we have people who were being admitted simply because four hours wasn't, you know, if you've got a crashing emergency, you need to see them really quickly. The red cases we were always, I think, good at. But if you've got a case where they just need a bit of working out, you've sent some bloods off, and then the bloods are going to take an hour, or maybe you want to get your registrar to come and see them and review them, or just observe them for a little bit longer, you can't do that in a four-hour wait. So you land up having to admit them after three hours when they're actually going to go home after six hours. And that is a huge waste of time and effort, and uh, admitting them to the ward and, and the bureaucracy that goes with that. It's it was also things. it was also targets like waiting lists. So, for example, yeah. I think there's like an there were different time frames in which yeah. you had wait targets. Like if you didn't meet the 18 week target, mm. the next one was like 52 week, for example. Yes, nothing so, in between. So if you if you miss the 18 week target, you got penalised for that. Then mm. instead of being operated on and okay, let's get them done on the 19th week, it was yeah. like. Oh, they're 18th week now. Oh, well, they're not going to be a problem till the 52nd week. Right, yeah. we just throw them right yeah. to the back. Yeah. And there was that kind of nonsense where it was yeah. like, just to make the targets and the numbers look good, people were just being manipulated. And I think they still are. I mean, I'm, anyway, I don't want to go yeah, on no, about no, that too no, much. You're here, you know, to talk about something else. And you just said right at the beginning, you're busier now than you have been for a long time. You should be retired in the garden knitting i don't know what people do when they're retired i don't want to retire ever but like um why are you busy what are you busy with um well reading writing campaigning 
coming and talking to you, for example. Um, I, I was going to say, you know, hey, I'm a retired pediatrician, but my, my reason for speaking out about the pandemic and about COVID has come from various bits of my experience that I think enables me to speak out. And one is obviously I had a busy hands-on clinical job. I was working in intensive care, but also in infectious diseases. I looked after the kids with HIV. I was responsible for our immunization program in the hospital, etc. So I've got a background of the sort of work that might have been needed. Um, I've also got a big research background. So I, I know about setting up trials, getting ethical approval, etc. And I was on the panel of the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit at one point. Um, and then thirdly, I was in management. So before I retired, I was clinical director of women and children's services in a big district hospital. And that included the pandemic preparedness for the swine flu outbreak. And they were all the same numbers that came from the same places as, you know, um, Neil Ferguson, etc. Um, so I had some background knowledge. But the one thing I had that other people didn't have was the fact that I was retired. And that meant I had time, time to read all this stuff and also no risk. So the people on the coal face, some of them were just either been too busy to look or they've just not dared look because they got their heads down, nose to the grindstone. And they've seen that the people like your good self who've spoken out have put their careers on the line. Whereas I have nothing to lose. I, I, I have, I say, in fact, I did sign up, re-sign with the GMC because I thought they, I might be needed. But of course, because it was so obvious right back from when this came out in China and Italy, before it even got to the UK, that this was not a disease of children. So not surprisingly, I wasn't needed. Uh, you know, I, I didn't go back to work to, to help do pediatrics. I was, I was sewing scrubs for the consultants. So, so, they could give so their, yeah, yeah. So sorry. if this is a disease not of children, yeah. why, why are we having vaccines, COVID vaccines for kids? Is it six months and older? Well, not here. It's six months and older for um, children with high vulnerabilities, but not across the board. But yes, I mean that is absolutely the question, and that was the question that was staring me in the face. When in February 21, um, Andrew Pollard was, their unit in Oxford was advertising on six o'clock news for children to join a trial of AstraZeneca. So the first letter I wrote was to Andrew saying, hang on, why would you want to be doing a trial of a drug for which you've got no long-term adult safety data for a condition that doesn't affect children? If I'd suggested that three years earlier, I'd have been struck off. Who is Andrew Pollard? Well, he is a professor of um, paediatrics and in Oxford and leads the vaccine centre which made AstraZeneca. But incidentally, well, not incidentally, he is chairman of the Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunisations. So, so no conflict of interest there? Well, he stepped down from the COVID vaccines committee. Oh. So he's still chairman of everything else, but he's not the chairman of the COVID vaccine. What a nice man. So it, very nice. But So he, hold on one second. Yeah. No, no, no. So the same AstraZeneca, which is quietly just not being given out anymore, hasn't been withdrawn because if it was withdrawn, yeah. people would be asking questions. Yeah. But, you know, we don't use it anymore because mm, maybe it's causing problems. Yep. So hold on one second. Let me guess. When you asked him that wonderful question, why are you giving an experimental jab to children for a condition that doesn't even affect them and we still don't know the outcome and the safety in adults. His response to you was a big fat zero. You're wrong. 
You're wrong, Ahmed. Completely Whoa. wrong. Whoa. I, I think what was most extraordinary was my response from him came within one hour. I emailed him at about 10 o'clock at night. And within, actually, I think it was less than that. It was in about 10 minutes. I got a reply saying, hi, Roz, because I know this guy. I worked in Oxford Region. Right. So it said, hi, Roz, you are quite right. We don't know about safety. And that's why we're doing the trial. It's been approved by the MHRA. So therefore, it must be all right. We don't know about safety, and that's why we're doing the trial. I subsequently had a Zoom call meeting with him um, in which he said this is absolutely only a pilot study, and we're, there's no way a vaccine's going to be rolled out to children within the next year, etc. And then what happened? Well, then, of course, as you know, they were rolling a vaccine out to children within a few months of that. But also what happened, of course, was that less than four weeks after they started, well, they vaccinated 300 children in that trial, Less than four weeks later, the first deaths in Europe led Denmark to suspend AstraZeneca for everybody under 50. And so the trial had to be suspended. But they'd actually by then already recruited the full number. They, 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 it was done. And do we know what the outcome in those children is? They've the, never published it. I mean, I don't suppose any of them came to major harm, but who knows? Will they be following them up? I hope so. They did, re, they did reopen the study for the follow-up because obviously having given them the dose anyway, I think they, they, you know, it was for a while it seemed to be suspended and then it was back on, but saying not recruiting. But I, I have to admit, I've never seen anything published and I should get back to him, shouldn't I, and ask for the papers. I think you should. Yeah, I think you should, I should. You should Absolutely. ask for preliminary data results. They must mm. have some information, mm. you know, what's going on. Yeah. But, but I think the purpose of the studies of the, most of the PDA, if you look at most of the children's trials when you come to Pfizer and Moderna and so on, they're small. They're ne none of them were anywhere near big enough to look for safety. You know, the Pfizer trial, which rolled out the children's dose, was on 1,130 children, and they were followed for two months. Well, you don't need to be a pediatrician to think that doesn't sound like good enough to say safe and effective. So I've had these conversations now with sure lots of different people, including Aaron Siri, this yes. lawyer from the yeah. States, and he says that's actually very common for most of these vaccines, any vaccine, and I wouldn't call mRNA technology vaccines, but all of mm. these things, whatever you want to call them, traditional historic vaccines or the modern jabs that we're giving, there are no real long-term safety data. There's no real true placebo yeah. group. You, yeah. You're comparing a vaccine against an adjuvant or some other kind of toxin. Yeah. There's no real unvaxed, vaxed comparison, proper long-term nationally funded study. You know, I talked to yeah. Brian Hooker about this yeah. in the podcast. Yeah. And it was yeah. mind blowing. Surely a government or a national health public body would be like, hey, let's get 100,000 people in one group, 100,000 children in another group. Let's follow them up for 20 years. Let's see if there's a difference between the yeah. two. Yeah. We don't have anything like that. No. And I think, you know, even in adults, you look at the size of the Pfizer trial, you know, there were 40,000 people, 20,000 vaccinated and 20,000 unvaccinated, but they didn't follow them up because they decided it would be unethical not to offer the vaccine to all the people in the placebo group. So here I am now, I'm in the facts control group. I don't know if you are, but there's a large body of volunteers all around the world, you know, half a million of us who are registered. And I agreed I wouldn't take any vaccine for three years in order to provide some long-term safety data. Ros, but the actual trials, they abandoned the data within two months. Yeah, and, and, and this is the upside down world that we live in because I think... To be honest, if you want to call it ethical, the whole point is you're meant to have a control group yeah, and you're meant to have long-term studies yeah. and you're meant to follow them up and compare 
and contrast. Yeah. That's what an ethical study is. Imagine I did a, a, a new operation yeah. and I started do, rolling out this new operation. And within a few months, I said, listen, you know what? It's unethical for me not to do the same wonderful, sexy operation in all the control group. Yeah. The Medical Ethics Committee would laugh yeah. me out and report me to the GMC. Are you joking? You're meant yeah. to have a control group that you follow up for five years, 10 years, yeah. and you're giving us the excuse that it's ethical now to operate on them. And it was ironic that it was the drug companies that asked for this. It wasn't the regulators. They asked because they said it wouldn't be ethical. Once we know it works, we'll have to give it. And yet they're now turning around admitting that they never tested to see if it would prevent infection and transmission, for example, which is a fairly major part of something working, or whether it will work for more than a few weeks at a time mm -hmm. so that you wouldn't have to have endless boosters. Um, and you have to be a bit cynical and think, well, maybe one reason for stopping the controls early was that you don't want to find out about safety. And I, I talked to a lot of people who said, oh, but, you know, most, most vaccine injuries occur within seven days, a fortnight max. But that's because, as you say, most of the trials haven't looked. If you take HPV vaccine for teenagers for preventing cervical cancer later, um, the follow-up, I mean, A, it was tested against an adjuvant, like you say, so it wasn't a true placebo. But B, the follow-up, they, they had two weeks of known, they talked about whether it was a known expected side effect. Well, since it's a new vaccine, how could you know what the expected side effects are? So how do you look for the unknown and unexpected? And those got up to four, four weeks, I think. And it was then up to the, it's always up to the local in, investigator, principal investigator to decide, is this because of the vaccine, or is it coincidental? So obviously, if they look at something odd, they just say, oh, well, that's nothing to do with the vaccine. Yep. So the de the, by definition, you land up that the side effects are all the ones that you'd guessed. So primary ovarian failure, which is now a recognized side effect, was discovered years later, because obviously, if you're vaccinating prepubertal children, 100%. you won't know that they've got primary ovarian failure until at least five years down the road when their periods have failed to start and they've eventually got investigated. By then, everybody's forgotten they had a vaccine. Do you know what I don't understand? How is it that people with such high IQs are so goddamn stupid? You know, to say things like, oh, but we know most of the complications happen in the first week. How? There are no long-term studies. I know. I know. How do you know that? Know. You cannot say that. So take surgery. Yeah. Right? And when you do an operation, there are short-term complications, mid-term complications, long-term complications. Oh. And these complications are different. What you see in the short term, you don't see in the long term. There's a different range and pathology and spectrum of yes. issues that yes. you can encounter. So if you're only looking at a patient group following a vaccine for a few weeks or days, guess what? You'll miss all the long term stuff. You're missing all the midterm and long term yeah. complications, yeah. which will look very different even to what was happening in the first week or two. Yeah. And this idea that, oh, we don't need to look long term and there's no need and it's safe and effective. I think that's one, criminal. And two, scientifically, it's ridiculous. It's flawed. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm really concerned and worried that the medical field has let this ridiculous scam go on for quite a long time, mm -hmm. Ros, because the truth is, you know, if we had a better understanding and scrutiny of vaccines and vaccine safety, and we didn't put it on the pedestal and the sacred cow that it is, we might not 
have allowed the government to do what they had in the last few years. Now, listen, moving on. Yeah. Are children now still getting COVID shots? Are they recommended like 15 and above or anything? Or what's happening no, with that situation? No, what's I mean, what's, what's interesting is that in the autumn booster, it is now not available for any healthy under 65. So they've, they've dropped it completely. And even primary vaccination, if you suddenly decided now, if you became a five-year-old after that, that deadline when they rolled it out for five to 11s, then you can't get it later. They can't just suddenly say, oh, I'd like it now, because they're now saying that even a primary course, you don't get one. Why so, if you, you so what's changed? Ill, what's changed? Well, nothing's changed, except that they've realised, presumably, that these were always not actually sufficiently safe and effective. And but what, they're not saying so. Like oh, you said about AstraZeneca, it's just a quiet way of hoping that we'll all think it's because the pandemic's over, rather than think, but hang on, maybe, maybe they weren't as safe as we were told. I'm 48. Why did I get a text message saying, oh, Mr. Malik, you're entitled to your COVID autumn booster? Because you're working for the NHS? No. Nope. No? Well, in that case, it's a mistake. I find that very odd. Yeah, my response was, you must be bloody joking. Yeah, well, no, fair enough. But I, I would have assumed you'd had it through work. I saw your, you must be bloody joking, but I, I assumed you'd had no. that through work. No, no. You see, I had a flu vaccine through work for years, and then I missed one year when I retired. I didn't get the one when I was 64. Right. Then the next, because I retired just before I was 64. But the next time I was 65, so I got one anyway. Do you, so still, get, just, do you still get the flu shot? Well, it's interesting that you should ask me that. I got one in 2020. Um, I, I did. And then by 2021, I'm thinking, I know now an awful lot more about vaccines. And, and that's one of the things I feel badly about is that over the years that I was working, I took a lot of stuff on trust. I look back now, I look at the regulatory, the whole regulatory system. Mm-hmm. I think it's bought top to bottom. I, I think academia is bought. Why, why do you say that? I mean, like, like, we need to break it down. Look, we need to break it down. Yeah. So you're not, you've not had any more flu shots since 2020. You're not having any more shots. So you're not an anti-vaxxer because you've been vaxxed up to the hilt. Yes. But now you're saying you don't want to. What's, what's happened? Have you suddenly become a tinfoil hat wearing crazy person or what's going on? I, I've looked at a lot of the data and if you, you actually do look at, for, I mean, take for example, flu vaccine, um, the efficacy is poor. It's, it's, there are years where it's been only 2 to 5% eff- efficacious. Another year it might be 30%. It's never over the 50% that's, that's required. Well, I can see that because the, despite the mass rollout of flu vaccine and everybody in this, every hospital getting it and all the elderly people getting it, every year we seem to have a, a crisis. Yeah. So precisely. I'm sorry, you know, if it was working, then yeah. Yeah. why is there a crisis? Yeah. It's as simple as that. You don't even need to go into papers. I can no, see it. That's right. And I, I think you can see that, well, there, there have been some quite good papers looking at the overall, if you look at influenza-like illnesses, as opposed to having to say what bug it's due to, yeah. they have not gone down. Yeah. Now, as an interesting, there was a paper from talking about children and the, the flu mist, which is this live virus vaccine you squirt up their nose, um, is that when they followed them up in the, the next winter, they had less cases of flu. They did have less cases of flu, but they didn't have less cases of all influenza-like illnesses. They actually had more because they had more other bugs to the point where it actually overcompensated for the ones they'd saved. So a, a bit like you might say with Pfizer, you know, you could have less deaths from COVID on that vaccine on that trial 
But if you had more deaths from heart attacks and strokes and pulmonary emboli, and you landed up with more people dying in the vaccine arm than the placebo arm, mm. which is what they found, we still don't get told that. I mean, I, you know, I'll have neighbours saying, I don't understand. If it, surely if it saved even one life from COVID, it's worth it. But it's not worth it. It's in the process of saving one life from COVID. You've killed two people but with side effects. And that was certainly the, the flu vaccine. Well, I've got, it's not. I got a friend messaged me this morning, my lovely friend, Vanessa Gray, and she was saying, look, my neighbour is a smart person, high IQ. And when she said, well, you know, there's some safety concerns with these vaccines. Are you still going to go and get a booster? He's like, Absolutely. I, there's no safety concerns. There's no risk at all. I, you know, I've done all the li- literature research and, and, and these are safe and effective. It's, 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 well, what is happening? Uh, so who's right? Is, well, that, is that guy right or are you right? I, 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 don't, I don't think he's right. I think we're not being given enough information to do the job which the government should be doing, which is to look seriously at all-cause mortality. We know about the excess deaths. And, and there's, I mean, there's another thing from Joel Smalley only yesterday, I think, with some really interesting graphs, quite depressing, which is that for all age groups apart from the over 75s, you find that the excess, the increase in excess deaths has come following the out, uh, rolling out of the vaccine program. So there were a few excess deaths, obviously, in 2020 from COVID. But the amount of excess deaths in 2021 and 2022, which are non-COVID deaths, are greater. I know Ed Dowd. And, this, and like Ed Dowd. Ed Dowd has talked about this on my podcast as well. It, it, but um, the only way to absolutely nail this would have been either if you'd had two proper groups, like you said, separated, control group and active group. Because then over time, you can say, OK, this lot had more of so-and-so and that lot had less of so-and-so. Okay. All cause mortality or morbidity was was or was not. Whereas at the moment, the yellow card system, A, most people forget to fill them out. So we know it doesn't report more than mm. maybe five to ten percent max. Mm. Um, but also we know that when the MHRA look at the yellow cards, mm-hmm. they look and decide it's coincidence. But if it had been in a randomized trial, then you can't do that. You have to say this is how the dice have been thrown and you have to accept the result. Um but until they look and say, okay, what, what proportion of these people were vaccinated? That data's just come out now. I think there's been somebody's had to pay for quite a lot of extra data. And Chap Thor, well, somebody's written it up on as a guest on someone else's Substack. I'm not sure. Um, and I'd have to look it up. But um, So let's go back to these flu vaccines. Yeah. For children, these nasal spray. I mean, I think this time, this this time this year, it's it's a mass rollout. All school children, like never before. Yeah. Am I like am I crazy? But from what I know, flus and these colds, they're not a problem for kids. And to me, I think young children they need these little colds and sniffles and bugs. It's training their immune system. This is what it's all about. This is what happens. And. It doesn't make sense you're giving this product that is not effective. It doesn't reduce the flu, um, you know, in, in any measure. And like you said, it might cause more infections and other issues. Yeah. They are experimental. It's not like the same flu vaccine every year. There's different brands, different, you know, you know, companies making them. They're live. We don't know what's inside them. There's, there's a risk profile. Parents are not being told about that. No one's coming and giving the packaging. 
and saying, look, you know what? The risk of flu, your absolute, your child's absolute risk of flu is this. This is the risk and the rate of complications from the flu, you know, if there are any. Um, and it might be one in 10,000, one in 50,000, one in 100,000, one in a million that some, your child, your healthy child will be affected by the flu. I think it's probably even less than that. Okay, how many kids, healthy kids die of flu every year? Just ask me that, answer that one question. How many healthy kids die of flu every year? A dozen. A dozen. Healthy. No other comorbidities. Oh, no, I can't tell you that. No, most of those would have other comorbidities. Okay, so none, basically. I mean, certainly COVID, it came out for healthy children. It was one in two million. Okay, but for, we can almost say that yeah. the risk of a healthy child dying of flu is almost nil. Yeah. Okay? Never say never, but it's yeah. close to that. Now, what I would like to know as a parent is, if my child has this vaccine, what is the risk? What is the risk that they might develop a, a con chronic condition, an anaphylaxis, or even more severe neurological condition, or a, or a life in you know impairing condition? What give me that number? Now, if it's significantly less than that, almost you're never going to die of flu. I think my child and I would say, "Well, we don't want this. Mm. We're not being given informed consent." And the problem is when you roll out a medical intervention to millions of people you will see harm yeah and then that goes against the whole medical ethic of first do no harm i don't think parents and children are being properly informed about what are in these vaccines i don't think they're giving proper choice because people are coming to the school and saying to all the kids come on right roll up put up your sleeves and even if your parent has said no you're not getting the shot they go up to the child and say you know you get it competent do you want the shot all your mates are having them and that's a kind of coercive then environment. I think the other thing, of course, is because it's a live, a live vaccine, actually, even if you say no, you can get the same side effects. We're talking about shedding now, aren't we? Well, we're talking about it's a live virus, it's a live vaccine. So, yes, of course, you're giving somebody a small dose of the flu. And the, the proportion of children who are off school in the week after the flu vaccine is quite significant. Um, you know, and this happens every year and there will be parents who who don't want their children vaccinated who will keep them off school for three or four days because they say if we let them go to school and simply say don't have it, A, they get, as you say, bullied or pressurised by their mates or their teachers into doing it. Oh, don't you care about people sort of thing. Yeah. Um, or <clears throat> B, they get ill anyway. Despite not taking it. Well, so if, you're having, well if, actually, if you're having it shoved up your nose and then all the kids are coming out and sneezing yeah. and... But everybody's breathing it all in. Precisely. So why are they pushing all of this? Oh, um, I, I, if I could answer that, I mean, you know, the obvious one is money. Mm. Uh, you know, if you think about the COVID jabs, they are a fantastic money spinner. To get a vaccine that's not very effective and doesn't last makes you more money than if you'd done an effective vaccine. I mean, that sounds a weird thing to say, but if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, most of the things they seem to be really interested in are chronic diseases where you can keep the prescriptions going forever. You know, you get yeah. somebody with type 2 diabetes, and instead of telling them to lose three stone and get rid of their diabetes, you put them onto some anti, you know, like yeah. hypoglycemic drug, so to speak. And then they're on it. They're told, they were being told that you've got diabetes for life now. And, if and you that's got, not really true. And if you're diabetic, then I think it's a whole package, isn't it? You get, yeah. you get told, right, you need a statin, you need a beta oh, blocker, yeah. you need some heart medication. Yeah. You need, suddenly it's like, shoom. Yeah. It's, you got the whole 
chemistry, ph- pharmacy of, oh. of drugs yeah. there. So flu vaccine, obviously that's a yearly one. So that's pretty good. Repeat business. Whereas smallpox, I had smallpox vaccine. I only got it once and that was it. So they didn't make a lot of money out of me. And it was, well, I don't know. When did you start working as a paediatrician? What year? Oh, 1972. Okay. How many jabs were kids getting at that age um well not very many i mean it's interesting because we had this conversation i had with a, a friend of mine who was obviously very shocked that i said i hadn't had my covid vaccines oh i didn't know you were an anti-vaxxer and it suddenly struck me and i looked back she's in her 80s and i didn't say ask her point blank how many vaccines did you have as a child but you see i had two i had smallpox and diphtheria that wasn't because my parents were anti-vaxxers. That is because they were the only two vaccines available. How are you still alive? And yet, precisely, and yet, as you mentioned earlier on, this God, this pedestal, the idea that vaccines have been the most amazing thing that has helped the world beyond all compare. Actually, what really solved health problems in the UK largely from infectious diseases was separating the water supply from the sewage. I mean, that's fairly basic, but, you know, that's what the Victorians did. Mm. And it's, you know, we don't get cholera and typhoid, not because we're vaccinated against them, but because we've got clean drinking water. And then you have better nutrition, and then you have better housing. You know, you look at tuberculosis and the the BCG um, vaccination, and actually it it may be useful, but it's... The, the biggest thing was getting rid of tenement block overcrowded housing. Mm. And so if you were to look at the third world, because we're always being told, I mean, there were quite early on people like Andrew Pollard, who we mentioned earlier, was saying, oh, we shouldn't roll out vaccines to children until we've offered the COVID vaccines to everybody in the world who's at risk. All the elderly in the world should get it before children. So he was making it look like <clears throat> this was a really kind, generous thing to do. And I'm thinking, if you look at the amount of time and effort that the WHO are spending with the help of these other quangos, Gavi and Sepi, and I don't know what they all stand for. Well, I do. But if they'd spent that amount of money and effort on drinking water and nutrition, they would have achieved far more because then you'd improve their immunity against not just that one thing you're vaccinating for, but everything. Mm. And would we now be run by a load of uh, dodgy plumbers instead of a dodgy pharmaceutical industry? I don't think we would. Because actually you'd have just got people in their own villages, you'd have helped, you'd gone and assisted, um, and then left. But even now there's some talk about Nestle taking over drinking water and sort of being the company that would then manage providing drinking water in the third world. And then you think, what? (laughs) I've heard it all now. Yeah, so, okay... What about the latest one where if you haven't had your vaccines or whatever, you're not allowed to go to school? Have you heard that? Yes, I have. What is, what is that that's, all about? That's what? about MMR. Now, mm. obviously, ever since the measles vaccine first came in, I think it's been one of the less popular vaccines, probably partly because most people had experienced measles in childhood and they didn't see it as being... A problem. You know, it wasn't a polio, diphtheria, yeah. smallpox. Um, so... There was a, a bit of reluctance. Um, and then obviously there were questions raised about safety. Um, and there was quite a drop off in the um, vaccine uptake. 
And then it went up again a bit, but it's been up and down over the years. Mm. Um, and there's every so often there'll be some panic, particularly in London, where vaccine uptake is slightly lower than in other parts of the country, of saying we're about to get a terrible measles epidemic. They've been saying this. They said it five years ago and they're saying it again now. Mm. There's going to be a measles outbreak. And then there's been a letter round from a lot of the London boroughs to their um, local parents saying that if there is a measles outbreak, which hasn't yet happened, but if there is a measles outbreak, then we might have to say that children who were not vaccinated couldn't come to school. Because if you have a case in your class, um, then obviously the ones who weren't vaccinated are likely to catch measles over the next week or two or three. So they would be told that if one child in the class has, vac has measles, then all the unvaccinated kids would not be allowed to come to school for three weeks so that you wouldn't then land up with a little mini epidemic in that school. Haven't we gone backwards, though? Because in the past, yeah. kids wanted, parents would take kids to these parties so they would all get. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the whole point was for everyone yeah. to get infected. Yes. Oh, I know. Uh, so, so certainly, it, I mean, it, and also it, it's hugely discriminatory that you're it saying is. to the child. I mean, talk about, you know, it's bad enough going into school on the day of the vaccines and being the only child in your class, maybe, whose parents have said they don't want you to have it. And you're being slightly shunned by your friends thinking that you're not a good person yeah um and then you're going to be taken <clears throat> out of school for three weeks which just proves you're not a good person um you know and you just look at what happened to the kids through the pandemic in the first place the idea that we should have been closing schools in the first place or putting kids into masks you know saying to parents you've got to wear a mask to collect your child or drop them off at primary school in the outdoors the fresh air What's that saying to the children coming out of school? It's saying you're a toxic, contagious, horrible person. And it if is, you it's don't, exactly it that. It is exactly that. And if you don't give the you, food... You could, die, you could yeah. kill granny. You could kill granny. I mean, what a horrible thing mm -hmm. for a child to think, I could kill granny. Yeah. I, I'm fine. I can get this disease and it doesn't bother me, but I'm being selfish as a result. Yeah. My body is selfish and cruel and I'm going to kill granny. Yeah. What the frack? I know. And, and that brings me back to the COVID autumn booster. You were saying, can children get, who's getting it now? And the answer is no healthy under 65s are being offered COVID Ex except vaccine. Except me. Except you by mistake. And me, because I'm over 65, I keep getting these, you know, extra texts. It's so friendly of them offering me to come. Um, but also anybody aged between 12 and 64 who lives in a household with somebody immunocompromised can still get it. So that is sort of saying that they still believe that this vaccine prevents infection and transmission, but they know it doesn't. We know that most of the people getting COVID now are the people who've been multiply vaccinated. There's been a really good study showing that the more doses you've had, the more likely you are to catch it, which is quite worrying in itself because it rather suggests that the vaccines in multiple doses are doing something odd to your immune system. Well, that's what Angus Dalglish was saying yeah. to me. He was saying that it, it's basically damaging your immune system yeah. and it's fatiguing it and it yeah. doesn't. And there's been an you know, immunoglobulin switch as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, it's just you're exhausting the immune system with this relentless injections, yeah. the spike proteins. There's also, I was speaking to JJ Cooey, he was talking about how the spike protein then labels cells as, as non-self. Yep. Yeah. So now your immune system's struggling because it's like, hey, I thought you're self, but you're non-self. What is going on? And what, you're meant to attack your own body? I mean, it's just getting ridiculous. And, yeah. and if we look at the, the kind of panel of 
complications we're now seeing, the adverse effects with these vaccines. You can see this massive spectrum. I think Pfizer's own documents had pages and pages, thousands, thousands yes. of potential yeah. complications yeah. because, you know, you're fundamentally, you know, messing around with the inner workings of the human body at a cellular level, yeah. you know, and you're going to, you don't know the ramifications or, or some people do. But most people are totally ignorant and blind to it. I've also seen, I'm sure I found some packaging for the vac- flu vaccine, for example. Mm. And, and, it would, and it would say, do not give this to immuno, if you're immunocompromised. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm not making this no, up. You, you know, are not. I you have read not. the packaging. Yeah. It says, do not give this. And then you think, hold the frack up, because that doesn't even make sense. No. Nope. Because right. you're meant to take the vaccine if you're immunocompromised and elderly because it's going to boost your immune system and protect you. But here's a packaging saying don't take it if your immune system's compromised. Ah, but there, that's the point, Ahmed. There are two different vaccines. So if you're over 65 and vulnerable, you get given a killed vaccine, and that's safe. But if you're a 10-year-old, you get given a live vaccine to protect your elderly relative, and you're given the live vaccine, which you then take home and give her. It doesn't make sense. So she's not allowed to have that live vaccine. And yet you're telling the child to have that live vaccine. So you're right. It does not make sense at all. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question. You hesitated when I asked you off air. I'm going to put you on the spot on yeah. air. You know it's coming. Yeah. You know it's coming. So listen, you, you boosted up granny that you are. You know, you've had all these vaccines, flu shots, all the things. If you could go back in time, would you... In, vaccinate your children now with all these things all the things that you're we've got on on the schedule the ever-growing schedule i wouldn't go for everything on the schedule i wouldn't say i would chuck the whole lot out i think one of the problems is as i said to you i in my childhood only got two vaccines in infancy i got a polio vaccine when i was seven i think and then bcg when i was 13 and probably tetanus when i started medical school or something and that was it. And then I probably got Hep B when I was about 40, because that's when that arrived. But I never got any of the others. Um, and the, the problem, if you look, there's been some studies. I mean, as you say, there are no decent randomized studies, even of the individual vaccines. They don't go long enough. They just look to see if you make antibodies. And it seems that you make do and you therefore get less of that bug in the next few years. But what a lot of them have shown, I mean, for example, if you take pneumococcus, then you get less pneumococcus, but then you found they got more meningococcus or you got less haemophilus. That was the first one that came out. Um, and then people got more pneumococcus. Now they're talking about strep A. Well, is that because they've already had Hib vaccine and pneumococcus vaccine and meningococcus vaccine? And as you say, your upper airway is intended to be full of bugs and will never be able to vaccinate against every germ that exists. So this is. So are we just always creating the next need by vaccinating against this, by always adding on. We never take something off and say, well, you know, apart from smallpox, which has gone, that's the only, only vaccination I know of that's ever been removed from the system. So, so the thing is, this war on viruses, if yeah. you even believe in viruses, mm. this war on viruses is almost like war on terror. It's never ending. Yeah. And the reality is we have bacteria everywhere. Yeah. I've had, you know, Sheena Fraser on the podcast. She was talking about the biome. I didn't realize. I am so stupid. I didn't realize we had bacteria in our eye. 
I didn't know we had bacteria yeah. in our spleen, in our blood. Yeah. Being an orthopod, yeah. I thought everything was sterile. Yeah. It was just it was yeah. just the bowels that yeah. were like bacteria yeah. and the skin. Yeah. And she was like, no, we've got bacteria everywhere. It's okay. And it's okay. And we live in harmony. And actually many of these are doing beneficial work. Mm. They're meant to be there. It's only if you've got the wrong bacteria in the wrong place and the wrong amount and the balance is, you know, yeah. out yeah. of place. That's where you run into trouble. And it seems like we've got this crazy war on bacteria and viruses. And it's like, we need to eradicate them all. But I think in the process, we're fundamentally damaging our immune system and we're creating harm. Do you know what's in vaccines? Do you know how they're made and stuff like that? Well, I think it's difficult to get all the ingredients, but I mean, one problem is the thing of of heavy metal adjuvants, for example. So um, most of the killed vaccines I think I'm right in saying this. Um, they used to have mercury and mercurial added. And then there was a lot of worry about side effects. Surprise, surprise. So they eventually took those out and replaced them with aluminium. But again, there's lots of concerns about aluminium. And the argument is always, oh, well, it's only in such tiny amounts, it's fine. But it seems to be needed that if you don't put an aluminium adjuvant, then the, the patient, the child doesn't make a good enough antibody response. So, which is odd because you'd have thought if you're giving them a bug, surely they should make an antibody response to the bug anyway. Exactly. So heaven knows why they need aluminium in there. But then actually when you add it all up, and particularly the number of vaccines that we're giving now, by the time you add up the amount, the amount of aluminium being given to infants is above the, the total annual recommended for an adult. And we don't know what these are doing. And I think we, we do know that, that aluminium has been linked with Alzheimer's, for example. Yeah. But that's, you know, in an older age group. But if we're doing this in infancy, I, I think we don't know. And I think the, the, some of the studies looking at this conglomerate of vaccines, that the more you have, there's been some studies looking at the more different vaccines you have, the more children have, you know, different autoimmune, allergic phenomena, asthma, um, you know, um, and also other neuro, neurodiverse conditions, autism and, and um, neurodevelopmental delay yeah. has been linked to large numbers of vaccines in infancy. So it's, it's funny. So there's a guy called Chris Exley, who was an yeah. aluminium yeah. In, investigator, specialist, researcher. Oh, he lost his job because he was uncovering a lot of things about mm. aluminium. There is no safe dose of aluminium. Aluminium is cytotoxic. It's, it kills, you know, all living cells. It's not in any normal physiological process in the body. It's not meant to be in our diet. It's not meant to be in the human body. And we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to get rid of it. No. And it can accumulate and it can go to the brain. And, and mercury can, was exactly the same. Yeah, and it can damage, yeah. oh. damage. The, the living adult body, but a young developing child, tiny little baby, and you're sticking all these, absolutely it can cause havoc. And what's, only, what's the only thing that's really surprising is why we haven't seen more problems. And I think that comes down to the fact that the human body is so resilient, is so incredible, yeah. is so amazing at healing itself, that despite all these poisons being put in us, most people are able to 
bat it off and keep it yeah. un- under control. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think, you know, you, you look at, for example, you mentioned giving these to tiny babies. Well, what about pregnant women? And I know you've had Sonia Elijah on and it, it's just... We, we, most women are really, really neurotic about not having unpasteurized cheese or, you know, tuna might have aluminium in, in the tuna, all sorts of worries about taking tiny amounts of stuff. And quite rightly, I'm not saying they shouldn't be cautious. And yet suddenly, oh, but do have this new vaccine that we've got no safety data on. The Pfizer documentation will still tell you that there's insufficient data for use in pregnancy or or while breastfeeding yeah and we know that the <clears throat> vaccine comes over into breast milk um but we were told it would all stay in your arm but you know it, it was again that that uh, we we're talking about why are people not being given informed consent it's not just that they're being not given enough information they're being actively lied to because i think right at the beginning yeah when they were saying it's safe and effective what they should have been saying, if they were to be honest, was to say, we think it's effective and we hope it's safe, but we don't yet have the data. And that would have been honest. And yeah. then, then people could have made up their own mind. Because if you were 75-year-old, I know I didn't take it, but, you know, okay, I'm healthy. But if I'd been in poor health and I'd chosen to take it, I would have said, I don't care about long-term side effects. I'm just wanting to get through the next winter. And that's a very reasonable position to take. Listen, but if you're a five-year-old, yeah. you know, it's, it's highly relevant. And like, then, I'm then, all about yeah. choice. I'm all about choice. Roz. I'm not entirely, actually, when it comes to children. You see, I've had people saying I'm not no, no. to restrict people's choice. But I think we as a society have a responsibility to children. We don't sell them alcohol or cigarettes for a good reason. Yes. So if you just said, oh, look, parents could choose if their child should have this vaccine, Okay, it wouldn't be an informed choice because you would be telling them it was safe and effective. 100%. And then they buy it. Um, but actually, we have a duty to protect children. So if it isn't safe and effective, and if the balance of risk-benefit is negative rather than positive, then we shouldn't be marketing. I was talking about adults. So what yeah, I was saying was, absolutely. So, so what I was saying was, you know, I don't believe in telling people they can't drink or they can't smoke or they can't. Like you know, banning it. I don't. I don't. If, no, I, yeah. If you know the dangers and the risks, and you still want to go ahead, good luck to More you. For you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. when it comes to these vaccines, do you know what, Roz? If you know that there's freshly healthy, freshly aborted fetus tissue in that vaccine with a little dose of aluminium and mercury and detergent and sorbazole, whatever nonsense garbage is in there. I don't know what it is. And bits of DNA of E. coli and plasmids (laughs) and DNA contamination. You know, if you're happy for this little gloopy soup that's being, you know, in a cauldron being, you know, put some eye newt in there and frogs, tail or a frog, frog's leg or whatever you know if you want to add all that concoction and, and take it in a little jab good luck to you all right as an adult um but they need to be informed people need to be informed they need to be informed fully about what's in this thing how it was made what are the risks what are the complications what is their individual risk and what is their benefit you know they people aren't being told this this all comes down to informed consent. Because I believe, even if you give choice and the informed consent, 99.99% of people would be like, uh, no, thank you. 
And I think one of, that's one of the reasons why the word experimental wasn't used. Gene therapy wasn't used. Because if you said to someone, hey, do you want to have an experimental gene therapy, like, which doesn't have any long-term safety data? I think most people would be like, nah, pass. But if you turn around and said, hey, we've got a safe and effective vaccine. Yeah. No. Okay. You're, you're and you get a donut and a burger with it. Yeah. Or a, a free football, Charlton Athletic football, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, that again, if you just, just thinking back to my, my career, I can't think of a vaccine that was launched with presents. Press tape. Yeah, press tape. Possibility of, of having to have that vaccine before you went to a nightclub. So it was a mixture of carrot and stick. Yeah. Uh, quite totally, totally bizarre. And setting up a vaccine centre at the Ministry of Sound nightclub or Thorpe Park theme park or yeah. Charlton Athletic Football. None of that is, that is coercive. But when it comes um, to children, yeah. I think a society has a, a duty to protect the vulnerable and the children and pregnant women. We seem to have forgotten all about yeah. that. We seem to, we've put them under the bus. We've rolled them under the bus. We've ruined their education, their, their development. We've ruined their psychological development. Their reading age is behind now. And we've, we've got, still got kids masked up. Mental illness has gone up through the roof. Yeah. I, parents are telling me they're stressed. I go, why are you stressed? Oh, my child. My child is still masking. My child is scared to go outside. My child is nervous because of what the whole pan, pandemic era. And now they're being started on antidepressants and anti-anxiolytics at an even younger age. Do you know in the UK, more than 8 million people are on antidepressants? I had a chap on Ruben DeWitt talking about antidepressants and the complications of PSSD. Have you ever heard of that? Mm. Post-serotonin uptake inheritor sexual dysfunction. But it's not just sexual. It's everything. It's cognitive mm. function. Yeah. It's your mood. It's You have num numbness in your genitals. You have numbness in parts of your body. And, and maybe that's driving the gender dysphoria because you feel like you're not attracted to anything or anybody. You, do, you doubt your sexuality. You wonder whether you're homosexual or heterosexual. Maybe you're non-binary because you don't, you don't, you're not attracted to anybody. You're messing up their sexual development. Everywhere I look, we are, we're ruining our children. We're giving them interventions. And we, on one aspect, which are potentially very harmful, well, but then we're also restricting what they can do and their ability to travel and be free. And then we're making them think that, you know, what, if you don't do this for the greater good, you're a bad person. Yeah. This is not healthy. We should be protecting our young children. What has happened? Yeah. And I think this whole thing of, like you say, both masking and the vaccine, one of the bits of propaganda that was very clever, really, was making it to be for somebody else. Yeah. And of course, we want our children to be kind and con con considerate and, and look out for the grandparents. But, you know, as a parent, if you're a parent and you're seeing an advert of a white-haired lady with a little primary school child on their lap saying, you know, have you got your children vaccinated? You're, you're that poor parent. They're <clears> stuck <throat> between who do I look out for? Do I look out for my child, do I put them first or do I think about my elderly parent and put them first? Yeah. But of course, this is thinking about this business about the booster. If you had an immunocompromised, don't kill granny. But of course, the simple answer is you can look after them both by simply saying no thank you to the vaccine. Because the other thing, I, I, we mentioned the fact that the more doses you have, the more 
likely you are to catch COVID. So how does vaccinating this child actually protect their grandparent anyway? Yeah. But B, worse than that, is there have been several studies, including from Public Health England. These are not off-the-wall, tin-pot little studies, but showing that you are more likely to catch COVID in the first seven to 10 days after your vaccine. And in fact, that was known about back in late 2020 at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. Ah, is that why for the thought? Yeah. Is that why for the first two weeks you're deemed unvaccinated even if you had the vaccine? Ah, Do you know well, that? Do you yes, remember? Of course you are. That's so that you don't, that's that, that's so that you can hide that. Yes. So all those people who get COVID then in the first, if you remember those care homes where there'd be some really awful, sad cases where they'd had no COVID for a whole year. Yeah. Then they had the, the um, vaccine team come in. And then they suddenly had an outbreak and they had a load of deaths. And that was so sad because, you know, what bad luck that they weren't yet immune because it takes you a fortnight to build up your antibodies. So that's the excuse is that you need to wait for a fortnight before it would have worked. So if you're looking at efficacy, you start two weeks later. Yeah. Fair enough. But if it actually makes you more likely to get COVID, then that should be in as a side effect, catching COVID in that first two weeks. But so what you do with that COVID cases, instead of adding it into the vaccinated group, you not only take it out, you actually add it into the unvaccinated group. So you, you mess up the calculation of efficacy. But more to the point, what I was going to say is somebody, that was already recognised. And so there was a suggestion when they were rolling out the vaccine to healthcare and care home staff that they should give them a week off work or maybe two weeks off work um, because the worry was if we give it to everybody at once you're there looking after the vulnerable should we actually have a a more cautious rollout slow rollout so we do a tenth of the staff and give them the the week off and then the next staff and then the next staff rather than doing everybody all at once because obviously you couldn't give them all time off but that was discussed and the the suggestion was that this we couldn't do this because it would increase vaccine hesitancy if you told people you're more likely to get COVID in the first fortnight. But if you're doing this for an immunocompromised grandparent, the logical thing would be to say to the child, could you go and stay with, you know, your auntie down the road for a, or, or, or send the vulnerable elderly relative away yeah. um, and have a two-week gap? And the same applies to the flu vaccine, really, that you shouldn't be giving... And if you've got a child who's got cancer, you know, they, they, it's very important that they don't get live vaccines, but also their siblings don't get live vaccines. It's in the contraindications for um, MMR. You can't give your baby an MMR, your one-year-old, if your four-year-old's got leukemia at the time. They never tell you any of this, but it's just, it's just this mass thing. We need to get everyone vaccinated. Vaccinate, vaccinate. By the way, I need to apologize. Your camera wasn't plugged in, so the power went off and I was really confused. I didn't know what happened. I'm such ah. a, I'm such a, I'm such a... Don't worry. Uh, yeah. I well, didn't. they don't need to see my ugly mate mug all the time. <laughs> the thing is, uh, it really is, I am just such a one-man band. I'm, oh, God, schoolboy error. Plug in the camera. Switch Duh. it on at the ball. So listen, Roz, you've done a million gazillion letters. How many letters have you done? Because I, I, I you, you do these letters to the MHRA and various <laughs> different joint vaccine committee, whatever it's called. Um, and, you know, people sign it. And uh, you get a decent number of people signing and supporting. And, you know, I've done that as well. You have indeed. So how many letters in total have you sent off now, roughly? About 30. 30? Yeah. Uh, Has it made any difference? (laughs) 
That's a difficult one to know, Ahmed. I mean, obviously, you never get a sensible reply to any of them. But I, I, I just don't. I, I think it's been helpful for the public because, of course, we've made them all open letters. So a lot of people. I've had parents saying thank, thank you so much um, because. It's given, you know, I didn't want to do this and I had a hunch it wasn't a good idea, but to actually see in writing with references, because these are, these are letters with, you know, proper peer-reviewed articles, et cetera, et cetera. I know, they're proper uh, documents. They're documents. And then they've been signed by, you know, a dozen professors. And we've got on, the, on this group of us who've been writing letters, we've got every specialty. We've got pathologists, we've got microbiologists, psychologists, pediatrician. Infectious disease consultants, consultants from emergency medicine, cardiologists, oncologists, etc. So, do you know this what? I think just off I, the wall. Group. I think you should not have my, my signature. I'm lowering the bar. I'm lowering the standard. We have several surgeons actually, and I think it's quite interesting. We've got more <laughs> surgeons than physicians, and I don't know what that tells you. I think it tells tells you that you're good at getting informed consent. Mm. Um, because you're used to the idea that informed consent involves explaining, as you said earlier, short-term, medium-term and long-term side effects. You also have to explain what would happen if you don't have the operation, what alternatives are there. Would it be better to just wait and see? Mm. You also have to um, give, get them them, give, it them, give them choice, but also give them time. Give you them give time. them the choice and then they may be pre not if it's a crashing aortic aneurysm yeah. rupture, but for most things, you discuss the surgery, you say, yes, you'd like it, and you sign the form and they've given you some leaflets to take away and read. And then when you come back in to hospital on the day, they say, and, you know, just to go back over it again, are you still 100%, 100% sure you want this? I don't sign consents on the day of surgery. No. I, do, I do it several weeks before. You, give them you still off. double check it on the day I of then double check it on the day of surgery. But that's not how the vaccines work. You're nope. in a queue with a thousand people going into some huge gymnasium. Yep. And they assume that because you've arrived, you have consented. So I, I, I listen, you've brought back painful memories. I, I went... And I wanted to find out more and I wanted to ask. And and I'm in the middle of like, oh, so we're in this. And, um, you know, the next thing, bang, in my arm. I didn't, I didn't, I felt sick. I cried in the car afterwards. I was like, what the frack was that all about? I didn't get, I didn't, I've never seen a consent like that in my life. Like, oh. it was just unbelievable. It's yeah. like someone coming to see me and because they've just walked into my room, do you know what? Next thing they're on the operating table, they're asleep and I'm operating and they, and they wake up and go, what? I just came to see you. I was, yeah. I was interested in the surgery. I want to know more about it, but I hadn't decided yet. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Listen, look, we need to wrap up because I need yeah. to pick up my yeah. kids' school. Yeah. Is there anything that is burning that you want to get off your chest? You know, just something, is there any topic that we haven't covered? Um, I think the main thing that we haven't covered is the question of, of consent to research in children. So even we were talking about the fact that, that you can still get a a booster if you've if you live in a household with somebody immunocompromised. But the other thing which has been going on at the moment, which is the last letter I've written, is a, a trial called Next Cove. And that was a trial of a new Moderna booster. Um and they are recruiting again twelve to 17-year-olds as well as 18 to 64s. So they are recruiting children. And if you look at the leaflet, it says it's A, all about doing your bit for mankind. <laughs> What's in it for you? Um, not a lot. 
uh, but you'll be feeling good. But B, it says, in, in all honesty, it says on page four that this is an experimental product and they don't, because it, it's a new, a new booster they're making um, to the, one of the new variants. It's not the bivalent. Um, and it says, we don't know whether it'll be safe or effective. And so, to my mind, that is actually not compliant with the Nuremberg um, code. code or Helsinki agreement or the NHS agreement, which is that for research in children, and I've done quite a lot of research in children, and it's not easy to get past ethics committees normally. You have to show, if you're doing a research in a child, that it's a condition that only affects children. So, you can't do the research in adults. So. Or something. They so have who's, to have some personal benefit. So what idiot on the ethics committee is approving this? Are they all just ideologically captured? I think they have. I, I can't believe they're all paid up shills and getting a big fat paycheck. No, I, no I, I, you're right. They can't be. Some people are, but most aren't. Some people are, but there must just be some idiots out there who just buy are buying in the bullshit. But I, I mean, I've been in touch. We've done a, a freedom of information to all. There are 35 UK centres participating. There was coverage in the Bradford Gazette of this, the first two to enrol in the study. One was a medical secretary at the hospital and one was her 12-year-old daughter. And they were enrolling in this trial. And there's one of the, one of the hospitals partaking, um, which is the London Hospital where I trained. And I was really shocked to see somebody sent me in from a WhatsApp group. This chap saying, hello, I'm a pediatrician from the Royal London Hospital and we're recruiting to this trial. You know, here's my email address and phone number. Get in touch. And then it says, and what's in it for you? £1,500 if you complete the trial. Now, that, again, is that's illegal. It's not just unethical. Do you know what? I can tell you right now, you could give me £5 million, £15 million, and I wouldn't go on this trial and I wouldn't want my children to go on this stupid trial. Yeah. What a bunch of... I know. But, you know, stuff. that... And I can't get anybody to take this seriously. I've tried to get hold of a protocol for the trial. I've tried to get hold of a copy of the ethical approval. But I'm not allowed to have it because I'm not a participating centre. So uh, how could I find out more about the oh, trial? I might, I might want to be a participating centre. We, like, we don't like transparency. No, we don't. And, no, and, no. So there's a thing called the... the um, Healthcare Research Agency. So I didn't know, I knew about the MHRA, but it's now there's the Healthcare Research Agency. And so I'm in an FOI with them at the moment. So Listen, you know I'll what? You know if they reply. They're all captured. They're all captured either financially or ideologically. Yeah. Well, if your next grant, you see Adam Finn, who's the deputy, well, he's also on the, the COVID and the JCVI, including the COVID branch of it. And he's a pediatrician in, in Bristol. And he was on that film called... Um, unvaccinated or something where they were trying to it was like a big brother watch thing they were all no in the idea. house together to try no. and make them get vaccinated it was an awful bbc film no idea um, but he heads up something called the pfizer center of excellence in bristol oh, but he's not got a conflict of interest because they don't pay him but if your grant is coming from this i mean like you say christopher uh, exley who you mentioned his his department were really being told if he carries on doing this aluminium research we're not going to get grants. So it's not just him. Yeah. The whole department was at risk. If yeah. he carried on, they were saying, can't you study some other heavy metal like lead? Um, so he left. But it, it's, that, it's that sort of capture. It's subtle. It is very it's, subtle. It is subtle, and the censorship is subtle. And the fact that I, I, I'm sure you, I don't know if you've done a subject access review, but those of us who have have discovered that I and 
everybody I know who's asked, who signed the original letter I wrote to the MHRA in May 2017, sorry, May 27th, May 2021, about the potential approval of this vaccine for children. This was before it had been approved. And Mm. we wrote listing all the concerns we had about safety. And we were referred to the counter disinformation unit. Now, that is an anti-terrorist unit. And we were referred who by? We were referred by the Department of Health. So when we sent a copy of that letter to Chris Whitty at the Department of Health, instead of replying or taking any of our concerns seriously, this is concerns about patient safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do they do? They say that we're spreading misinformation and they refer us to a counter disinformation unit, which has involvement of the 77th Brigade of the Army, which is the sort of counter surveillance. You know, I think most of the anyone, haven't any, got a clue. About anyone this. listening from the 77th Brigade, I really hope you are, by the way. Make sure you follow and leave a good review. But honestly, you know, I would just say, think about what you're doing. You're waging war on your own population. Just think about that. Just think about the fact that you are at war with your own people. What a patriotic job you're doing. I hope you're sleeping on a nice Union Jack pillow. Anyway, listen, Roz, um, if you, you know, reached the grand old age of 173, right? Mm-hmm. You're fitting well until that point, but now you're on your deathbed. You know, your time yeah. is limited. You're surrounded by your family and your loved ones, your, your great, 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 great grandchildren. What words of wisdom, advice, health or otherwise would you give them? I think... The most important thing is to do what you believe is right in your own heart. Um, if you do what you think is right and you take each day as it comes and, you know, try and look for the best in people. And that's what's been hard about all this because you find yourself going down conspiracy rabbit holes. But my my outlook on life has been naturally optimistic and maybe that's why I'm in good health because the, one of the real worries is that fear and depression and anxiety are bad for the immune system. So talk about keeping healthy. So yeah, get out there, live your life, but live it as honestly and openly as you can. I think that is really good advice. I think being positive and being happy and having a laugh and just all the good things in life and the good emotions and, you know, go towards the light. Don't go towards the dark. Yeah. Anyway, Roz, listen, I look forward to, unfortunately, your next letter. Um, like I said, I think I am dumbing down the standard by signing it. But anyway, you, know, you have been a real trooper. I mean, I, just anyone who hasn't checked, you know, the links will be on the website. You know, you, you put a lot of effort into these letters and they are very technical, very detailed, very scientific, referenced. It's not just, you know, a letter to some newspaper saying, oh, by the way, this is my opinion. You know, th- these are hardcore scientific, you know, level papers and um, the fact that no one's taking them seriously on the you know up where the authority and the state level is actually shocking indictment of what they're all about because they're all running scared of answering yeah. you because they know they don't have a leg yeah. to stand on and and all I would say to them if they're listening which they probably aren't shame shame on you for not doing what's right for the people of this country for the children of this country for the pregnant women of this country, shame on you. And I hope something really unpleasant is waiting for you in the next life. Sorry, is that a bit mean? 
I think that's very mean. But I agree everything apart from the last few words. They deserve it and more. Uh, I, uh, I, you know what happened to the people who got guilty in Nuremberg? Oh, I know. They were strung up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And all I said was in the next life or whatever afterwards. Oh, I know. I know. But it's a hard one. I mean, I, I, I would love people to start listening and being honest with themselves because I think the trouble is we've got to such, we've dug, people have dug themselves such a hole. It's, you know, if you're in a hole, stop digging, but that's what people won't do. The Americans are worse because, you know, they're pushing this out now. If if they were nice and in the in doing what they're doing and pleasant like oh Ross oh you know what oh you you think this oh no I think you're wrong let's have a conversation come around for tea and biscuits mm. I'd be like okay I'd be yeah. like on your side yeah. no, but I the guess. fact that they're referring you to the counterintelligence terrorism censoring you you know I'm not going to go into details but you know people who talk up um get referred to the GMC investigated suspended their livelihoods mm. cut off you know what no Gloves are off. Yeah. You know, enough enough is enough. We need to push back now. These people, if, if the nicey, nicey approach isn't working, they need to start getting scared. And I think honestly, they need to start worrying not about their little cushy jobs anymore and their pensions, but their future. And, and, you know, it's not going to be rosy. You're right. Isn't it? The first sign of madness is when you keep doing something, but you expect a different result. Yeah. TikTok. So you're right. I want to be. Um, time's running out. Yeah. No I'll more nice and nice. On that note, guys, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Bye, folks.